people welcome back to rebranding safety this is episode 18 how to do a fire risk assessment today i'm going to tell you the truth about fire risk assessments I'm going to tell you what you need to know what you need to look for and essentially the basics on how to do them yourselves if you don't want to do them yourself then still listen to the end um, where we'll tell you how to find good consultants, the tips and tricks of what to look out for to make sure they're telling you the truth. All of this to enable you to stay safe and cost effective. Let's get into the podcast. Health and safety is almost a victim of its own success. We are an oppressive regime of health and safety regulations. A huge fire engulfs a tower block in London. Children being forced to wear goggles to play conkers at school. Worst oil field disaster, 164 dead. Rebranding Safety, the modern health and safety podcast, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risk Fluent and your host, James McPherson. So welcome back people, so like I said this is episode 18, this week it's just me on my Todd, Uh, we're talking about fire risk assessments, Um, so let's get into it then, so we've done a podcast on the regulatory reform order which was episode 19, so in there that tells us who's responsible, so the regulatory reform fire safety order is the primary piece of legislation for fire safety, so in there, like I just said, tells you who the responsible person is for fire safety. So basically, if you're an employer, uh, the owner of the property, you know, the landlord, occupier, you know, anyone in control of the premises, for example, like a facilities manager, building manager, um, anything like that, you're known as the responsible person. There might be more, more than one responsible person, in which case, um, there is, and I can't remember the article off the top of my head, but there's an article in there around cooperation and coordination. So you've got to work together on that. So it also applies if you have paying guests, for example, if you run a bed and breakfast or a guest house or self-catering property like that. So you may be the responsible person. First thing to do, find out if you are. If you are the responsible person, you need a fire risk assessment. Hence this podcast. So the responsible person must carry out a fire risk assessment, tell staff or their representative about the risks that they've identified, put in place, maintain an appropriate maintain appropriate fire safety message, message messages, fire safety messages. Well, well, technically true, you do need to provide information, instruction, and training, uh, but I actually meant to say fire safety measures fire safety measures just a slight side note the reason i roll with these mistakes is so that i don't have to edit them out because it's an absolute pen in the ass because i actually mess up so much that um i actually spend all the time just editing so i roll with as many makes of mistakes as i can um but i do edit out and it probably double shouldn't really tell you that should i hmm. anyway moving on so appropriate fire safety messages message oh, do it again M- measures measures put in place and maintain appropriate fire safety measures there we go move on from that point not saying again that is it end of point plan for emergencies and then finally provide information instruction and training around fire safety and try to provide it in a clearer more concise way uh, to this podcast which this is not anyway 
Non-domestic premises then. So non-domestic premises, um, we, we spoke about them and the regulatory reform order as well. So, you know, if you listen to this and you think, yeah, this is me, um, this applies to me, I need to do a fire assessment, go check out episode 14 because I'll tell you everything you need to know around the law. So let's get into fire risk assessment then. So the basics of a fire risk assessment is not much different to a normal risk assessment. We've got to identify the fire hazard, identify people at risk, then evaluate, remove and reduce the risk, record your findings, prepare an emergency plan, provide training, review and an update and update the fire risk assessment regularly. It's basically the same. We got to identify hazards, identify people at risk, evaluate the risk, remove risk and try and reduce risk. Yeah, if we can't do that. We control the risk. Then in the guidance, it adds on the bits about recording your findings, prepare an emergency plan and then provide training. So we've got to do the risk assessment and then we've got to provide some training. So let's break these down then. So identify the hazards well the basics of hazards is going to what you need to know first really is the fire triangle so if you all imagine a triangle if you will and if you can see through the audio you will see that i'm actually making a triangle with my hands um so you can see me making this triangle and on one side of the triangle we have oxygen and then we have fuel and heat they make up three sides of the triangle so Without one of those, so we remove oxygen, without that, the fire cannot continue, yeah? So most of us know that, and we remove fuel, but we put oxygen back, and it can't continue. It will go down. Doesn't mean it's extinguished, but we're not going to go into that. It's too way too technical. But we remove one of them, the fire's gone. So we're trying to identify where we can have that kind of ingredients of a fire you know it's a chemical reaction of fire it's where a thing something is heated up so much that it vaporizes vaporizes and then we get flames so if you actually look at a match interesting fact if you look at a match and let's say if we would slice that match in half you'd be able to see that around the head of the match the flames don't actually touch the match head there's like this clear gap don't look too close because you might not have any eyebrows and I don't want to get sued tomorrow. You know, rebranding safety told me to look at closely at a match and I've got no eyebrows left. Um, but try and look at the match and you'll be able to see that there's a clear kind of film around the head of the match. Uh, that's where it's vaporizing. It's producing vapor and it's the vapor that's igniting. Interesting fact. There you go. One for your pub quiz. So we're going to try and identify where we've got oxygen, which is obviously everywhere, fuel and heat. So they're the two that we can control. Yeah, we can't remove oxygen really um, without us dying. So we try to separate fuel and heat. So we're trying to do that. We're trying to identify where they're together. Let's say we can't do that. One of the other things we're going to look at is how the fire might spread. So things we're going to consider here four main types of spread these are things you've got to consider so we've got conduction so conduction is the transmission of heat through materials so if you think about your cooker your frying pan on the side yes you've got conduction so the flames are heating the pan and then the heat is conducting through that metal yeah so where might you get that in work I mean, things like steel girders things like that where the heat can transfer transport not transform transport through the building via the heat conducting in those girders 
Yeah, radiation is a transmission by heat waves that are traveling until the heat is absorbed by other op objects. Um, an example of this would be like a bar heater, an open fireplace radiating onto a drying rack or like a curtain or something like that. Yeah, so sometimes when we see like a flashover where the room is heated up so much, the, the heat is radiating off these, these uh, say like a sofa in a room that they've got to the point where they're vaporizing so much that they combust, they spontaneously combust. Yeah, so that, if I remember rightly, that's a flashover. Then we've got uh, direct burning as well. So it's the simplest way uh, that a fire can spread. It's basically a direct application from flame to item. So match to paper. Yeah, simple, simple form. So what we're trying to do then is trying to stop those things happening. So we're trying to stop obviously the three points of the fire triangle, but then combine that with those methods of spread, boom, we've got a pretty bad fire. So we're trying to reduce the chances of that. Things like compartmentation will help us here. So compartmentation is quite common uh, in the news at the moment around the obvious issues that we've had um, and obvious tr tragic events that we've had. So in a block of flats is a great, great example of how compartmentation um, should work because ideally a flat would be a 60 minute compartment. So that means a 60 minute box that will that will resist fire for 60 minutes. Yeah. So the fire can start in this flat and it's not going anywhere for 60 minutes. Normal web work places where where might God, I can't get my words out today. I say today, I say this every week. Um, in normal workplaces, where might we get something like that? Well, in say like a block of offices, you're going to have like a protected staircase. That'll be why you've got um, fire doors around the staircase. You might have quite a big, wide open staircase, maybe with some offices coming off of like the landing. Um, that's fine. You've just got to have fire doors off of those things, yeah, because it's a protected staircase. So that'll be like a 60 minute protected staircase, and you'll have uh, probably 30 minute or five minute, uh, 60 minute fire doors on there, depending on the design of the building. So, um, why would you put 30 minute fire doors? Well, again, flats are a great example there. So, you only have a 30 minute fire door on a block of flats. Well, why is that? Because it's supposed to be a 60 minute box? Yes, that's a great question. James, thanks James, no worries James. Anyway, moving on. Um, you only have a 30 minute fire door, primarily because 60 minute uh, fire doors are heavy as fuck. Um, but it's because you would have that 30 minute fire door on one flat and a 30 minute fire door on the next flat. Therefore, 30 plus 30, my maths is bad, but I think that makes 60. Boom, we've got 60 minute compartmentation. So that's the basics of compartmentation. Um, what other things have we got to consider when we're talking about fire spread is uh, housekeeping. Housekeeping is a massive, massive contributor to fire spread. If we look at the Bradford football stadium fire, you know, that whole thing was made because of the terrible housekeeping that there was. So you imagine if you, if you know it, great. If you don't, um, I'll just go through it quickly. So if you imagine like kind of, a, I always refer to them as like the um, American football stadium seats, you know, where they're just like wooden 
wooden planks essentially that you sit on and you would put your legs on one in front of you and there's just loads and loads of them all stacked up nothing underneath them well that's what it was that's what the setup was at this football stadium well what happened there is that everyone has you know their chips and all that the newspaper just kind of dropped on the floor and that built up over years and years and years Somebody had a fag because you could smoke in the stadiums back then. Had the puff, finished it. They went to stand on it on the uh, on the wooden seat on the wooden foot rest, and it fell into the paper. <laughs> Up it goes. It's a wooden um, stadium that was due to be demolished, and the whole thing goes horrendous fire. You can actually get a really not good video, but it is a good video from a point of view of being able to use it for training and stuff. It's when I say good video, that's what I mean. And um, it's also quite interesting to see how people react in fire because they're all pissed off the head. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of how that happened. And housekeeping was a massive contributory factor to that. Um, other things we've got to consider, you know, the kind of the maintenance and the, of the ceilings and the walls and stuff like that, you know, it sounds really, really stupid, but if we go a bit OTT on, you know, posters and stuff like that all along the wall, then things are going to get out of hand and it's going to be real, real simple for that fire to spread. Consider things like wallpaper and stuff. I'm not saying go over the top and buy insumescent wallpaper or, or don't put any posters on the wall. I'm saying just just be sensible about this stuff. Yeah, schools can be quite bad at it. They want to they want to display everybody's posters. Um, you know, and, and you go there and you think, Jesus Christ, there's an escape route and there's paper absolutely everywhere. So just think about it sensibly. I'm not saying go over the top. Just think about it cleverly. Um, if you do own a building, we, we, um, we're talking about compartmentation again, but if you do own a building, you know, think about contractors you're having coming in and they're drilling holes through walls and they're breaching your compartmentation. Anyway, we're not really teaching you how to do a fire assessment, are we? These are all things essentially that you've got to look at when you're thinking about fire assessment. But most of you are just going to have real simple, simple buildings. Um, so we're just talking about how a fire starts. So we need to control the com combination of fuel and heat then we've done that now we're going to look at there's some let's just assume that a fire started we're going to think how can this fire spread from here what areas have we got to protect well the area we've got to protect is escape routes they're the most important bit because most of your buildings are going to be a an evacuation a simultaneous evacuation as we should call it um they're not going to be stay put you might have a couple of phase not phase you might have a couple of phase uh evacuation and you might have a couple of like progressive horizontals maybe um so just to quickly go through them phased would be let's say for example you've got like a collection of buildings set up kind of like dominoes um building one has a fire in it you might get building two that's connected to that the alarm would go off in building one and two because they're joined to each other. And then building three would have like a pre-alarm, um, just warning everybody that there is a fire in building two and one. Um, so do not leave building three, um, but potentially it might spread and we might evacuate the whole building. So these can all get, get overcomplicated a bit in depth, but that's what they are. A progress, progressive horizontal more common, more common and commonly, commonly, yeah, there we go commonly used in hospitals um things like that where they would move the patients around the building away from the fire and eventually evacuate anyway we're digressing again maybe you can't do fire assessments yourself because you know i've obviously over complicated this and it's we're going to be going 14 minutes <sighs> anyway so let's get back to the point emergency escape reset let's keep it simple james that's the whole point of this podcast so you want to have a uh, 
you're going to have some nice, clean, sterile escape routes within reason. Okay, don't go crazy. Like I said, you can have a couple of posters on there. You know, you don't go in there and be like, oh my God, you can't even put the, the fire action notice in there because it's got to be sterile. Like, for God's sake, just calm down. Consider with escape routes is, um, is the building being used what it's designed to be used for so if you're in a block of offices and it was designed to be a block of offices then great what that means then is that the escape routes are going to be designed for the give or take for the amount of people that are in that building so the minimum width for escape route should ideally be is 1050 mil but in any case not less than 750 mil 750 mil can accommodate up to 80 people in high risk properties, 100 in normal property, normal risk properties, 120 in low risk. Yeah, so that's that's what your building will most probably be designed to if it's being used for what it was designed for. So where we might get a little bit complicated is where you've got, say, like a Victorian terrace house that's been converted into offices. Yeah you're not going to get escape routes that are made for a shed load of people. So just bear in mind how many people you're putting there. If you're only putting, you know, using each room's got like two people in it upstairs and then you've got like five or six people downstairs, we're still talking pretty low risk. Doesn't mean you can't do that. No, it doesn't. What it means is you might have to go a bit over the top on the other things. So like the the re removal of heat and fuel together and stuff like that and you that's what a point of a risk assessment is you know it's not a go in there and we've got to do everything it says in the guidance it's to go in there and assess the risk you've still got to run your business at the same time and um, you've still got to make money and that's a point of risk assessment so think about the design of the building think about how you're using that building with escape routes, we've also got travel distances as well. Now, really, we're only talking big, big buildings here where it's going to start being a bit of a pain. So, again, it probably won't be a pain if you're using a building for what it is designed for. But in case you can find all of these travel distances and whips of escape routes, guidance you know it's real simple stuff everything's out there for you. you the only complicated bit that can be sometimes is finding the right guidance for you um, but to be honest most of the your buildings or probably or your operations or undertakings whatever you want to call them it'd be pretty simple for you to be able to pick out which one it's when we start getting into like housing and complicated operations where it really starts to get a little bit complicated so there are complicated things around travel distances and whips, but ultimately an escape route's just got to be easy, easy to access, safe, immediately usable at all times, adequate for the number of people that are likely to use them, free from obstructions and slips and trips, um, well lit by normal or, or emergency escape lighting, um, available for access by emergency services. It's got to have final exit doors in them. And there are some guidance around final exit doors as well. So the mechanism should really be simple and single operating units. Um, but again, you know, it depends on what you're using the building for and what it was designed for. And that's the point of a risk assessment. So, that essentially is kind of like highlighting the hazards or identifying the hazards. They're the things we've got to look at. So let's let's go over them quickly again. So we've got ignition, considering the combination of oxygen, fuel and heat, potential ignition sources. Then we're thinking about spread. Yeah, so we're thinking about 
the compartmentation of the building. We're thinking, can the fire spread by convection or conduction or radiation or direct burning? Direct burning would be housekeeping. You know, these are some simple, simple stuff, guys. Even though I have waffled on for 20 minutes now, making this really, really overcomplicated. <laughs> so, you know, real simple stuff we're going to think about. So what do we look at now? We've done that. We've, we've nailed that. Yes, got those two columns and the risk assessment. Absolutely nailed down. Now we've got to consider the people at risk. So who are we thinking about here? We're thinking about staff, visitors, contractors. They're the easy ones. We've got the other people, our neighbours, customers, uh, general members of public, trespassers even. You know, it's anyone that can get into your property. Don't be messaging me, man. Oh my God, health and safety gone mad because even your trespasser can sue you now. Um, because I, I, I'm still searching. And if any of you do know of a specific case study, but other than that farmer guy that shot the geezer in the back, I'm actually searching for a case study where where they've successfully sued the owner of the property. Granted, I think that they did beat the guy that with the um, the farmer that shot him in the back. I think he lost that case last I looked. But anyway, if you know, let me know, because um, I can't find anything. Anyway, again, we're getting off subject. Maybe we do a podcast on civil law. That would be a good one. So we're thinking about staff. Staff are lovely and easy people to manage. Uh, well, maybe not, but... They're easy from the context of fire safety because you know them, you know how able they are or are not. And in which case you can then do a PEEP. So a PEEP is a personal emergency evacuation plan. And that be when someone's even broken a leg and they're only temporarily disabled for a couple of months. You should take steps as the responsible person to ensure they can get out of the building. So my wife used to work in a property. She broke her um she broke her leg she worked on the first floor and they didn't do anything yet they like to preach how good they were at health and safety but they didn't do anything um they just left her upstairs and it took her about 20 minutes to get down the stairs so thank god there wasn't a fire and to be honest most of the time she was there on her own as well which was even more scary but Staff are nice and easy. All you've got to do is make sure that they're supervised or they communicate with you or both yeah so they've become disabled, they've become uh, hearing impaired or visually impaired or something like that. They need to inform you so that you can work with them to ensure they can get out in an emergency. There might be a wheelchair user, you know, and there are things where you can have refuges. There's, there's lots and lots of solutions. So don't be like, oh, you can't work here anymore. We've got to change your office, change your role. There's loads and loads of things we can do. Buddy, buddy systems are nice and simple get them into the staircase let everybody go and then you you and the buddy could just help them down the stairs you know it could be a confidence thing there's many many things you can do visitors visitors normally again are quite able but still could be the fact that you might get somebody a wheelchair you might get somebody's hard of hearing you might get someone who's visually impaired you've just got to ask a question so a simple question hey welcome to the building please you need to sign in here just so we know you're here because in the event of a fire we want you to leave the building as quick and as safe as possible and come round to the front of this car park just out the front you come meet me i'm your receptionist and i'll check the names on this book and hopefully you'll be there to put your hand up and say yes i'm here and safe do you have any problems with that are you able to self-evacuate on your own in the off chance that you do get lost um, and separated from the person you're with today the person you're with and meeting today will hopefully stay with you all the time um, and will escort you in the event of a fire but obviously there are the small slight chance you might become uh, on your own say if you go to the loo or anything like that 
So in that case, are you able, are you able to self-evacuate? Yes, I am. Thank you very much. Oh, great news. Hopefully you won't come to that and I'll see you at the end of the day. Have a great day. Boom. Induction done. Well, maybe I should record that and you just can all just have it and just press play at your reception. I think all receptionists hate doing that. Yeah, so that's a simple way you can manage visitors. And then it's on your staff now to manage that visitor. So they're their visitors. So, hey, James, your visitors here. I'll call. I'll come and get them. Thanks, Bob, the receptionist. Um, come with me, Charlie, the visitor. Charlie, just stick with me today. But we'll, um, in the off chance, we get separated. The receptionist tell you what to do. Yeah, they did. Yeah, I'm fine. We're getting out. Cool, cool. Your emergency exit are over there, over there. Let's crack on and do what we're here to do. Simple, simple stuff. Other people like neighbours, why neighbours are, you know, neighbours is where it's basically your neighbours, but it's anyone really that you can be affected by your undertaking. So you know, if your construction site, something like that, think about if you had quite a big fire uh, in a construction site, um, about the access to that construction site and things like that. Customers, same as visitors, you know, these are all simple things to manage. So now we're getting on to evaluate, eliminate and reduce. So basically it's the same as the normal risk assessment that you would do and we've kind of talked through it anyway you know we're just thinking have you kept any sources of fuel and heat or slash sparks even do you keep them apart you know if someone wanted to start a fire deliberately maybe is there anything around that they could use you know are you securing fuel from arsonists things like that have you protected your premises from accidental fire or arson you know how can you make sure everyone is safe? You know, how are you making sure everyone's uh, got out of the building in the event of a fire? So we just spoke about visitors. So the receptionist might take the visitor book out. What are your fire marshals doing? Have you got fire marshals? How, if you have, how are they checking the building? You know, roll calls are a bit out of date now. And actually, in my experience, they're really, really hard to manage. Admin heavy. Um, in a lot of, in a lot of our organizations where we're turning over a lot of staff I find a sweep is a lot quicker and a lot easier you know you've got six marshals and they're just gonna alarm goes off right I'm zone one walk around zone one knocking on every door how are we doing yeah everybody's out there's no one in here hello anyone in here no hello is anyone in, in here yes I'm here oh okay you come with me okay I'll know I'll evacuate no 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 you stay with me we'll keep going okay now me and you are gonna leave the building why do they stay with you? Well, they stay with you in case if that person gets separated and then they're still in the building. If they stay with you, when you get out, you know they're out because they're there with you. So things like that, you've got to consider. How are people going to be aware of the fire? So what detection have you got in? What alarm system have you got in? How are you warning people to make to get them out? How are you going to call the fire service? If it was a small fire, could you put that fire out quite quickly and do it yourself? So do you have extinguishers? If you have extinguishers, are people trained? Um, you know, you're thinking about how to stop it spreading there, aren't we? So we're thinking about eliminating it from the from the uh, from the start. When I worked in manufacturing, that was quite a big part of our operation because we had um, like explosive atmospheres. So a lot of our products that we were making um, produced an explosive gas. So it was um, the product itself was flammable um, as well. So, you know, we had this kind of concoction of just a fire waiting to happen. So the, the staff were heavily trained on kind of like emergency reaction. And I was actually in there once when a fire started. And the way these gents just operated and just 
kind of switched on, grabbed an extinguisher and just extinguished the whole line. And, and all the automatic systems kicked in and there was doors shutting everywhere and the gas had cut off and everything. It was it was just a slick operation and it was all stemmed from the explosive atmospheres assessment and the virus assessment and the training and the management all come together to p- produce this one-off emergency situation that was slick as beep. It was awesome. It was an awesome thing to watch. If you've got safety equipment, does it work? You know, can you imagine those guys um, picking up an extinguisher to extinguish that that product in an explosive atmosphere and the extinguishers didn't work? And like we've just said, they need training, they need to know how to use this stuff. So we touched on here what I would refer to as a capsule of fire safety system. So we mentioned like detection and alarm, you know, got to make sure that they match your evacuation. So we mentioned that there's four main types of evacuation, stay put, simultaneous, phased and progressive horizontal. And each one has a different setup of alarms. You might have two different sounders. You might just have a domestic setup in a stay put environment. You've got to think about that as well. Bearing in mind, this stuff will be in the health and safety folder that you were given when you purchased the property, hopefully. And the off chance that it isn't, and it's your first ever virus assessment, and you're probably not comfortable doing it, then maybe get a good consultant to come and do your first one so you can then review it going forward so that they can collect all the information and know that it's the right thing for the right building. That might be the best way to start. And we will touch on how to look for a good consultant in a minute. Other things to think about, fire extinguishers, you know, in general, they should be just provided um, for specific risks around your property. And nine times out of ten, you just find them on on the final exit doors. But the general guidance, I mean, typically, typically, if you look at the guidance, the LGA guidance, um, typically class A fire risk uh, provision of one water-based extinguisher for approximately every 200 metres square floor space with a minimum of two extinguishers per floor. So really two extinguishers per floor. On average, most um, office blocks now have two exits. So you would probably just have one at each exit. You're probably just going to have more than that anyway. Naturally, there's normally like a powder and a water um, to account for the PCs and stuff like that. So it's pretty simple how to do, how to think about all this stuff. It's just kind of common sense. Um, Emergency lighting. Where do we need emergency lighting? Again, really simple. Change of direction and change of level. Yeah, so when the level changes on your staircase, emergency lighting. When you're turning left or right, emergency lighting. Also need them one meter for emergency signage. So here's a trick so you don't spend loads of money. Don't put the lights near the sign, put the sign near the lights because the signage is really cheap and the emergency lighting is really bloody expensive. So don't be an idiot and move your lights to your signs or like I've seen, have an emergency light by a door, but then an emergency light next to a sign that we stuck to the wall um, about two meters down from the other emergency light. Like literally, stupidity breeds stupidity. Anyway, emergency light, real, 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 real simple. Change your direction, change your level, one meter from signage. So put your signs within one meter of your emergency lights. 
automatic suppression then there's no legal requirement at the moment for automatic suppression in most cases there are some minute cases where you will need them a risk assessment most likely will highlight the need for uh, automatic suppression in some cases where you might have a large ignition source or a large collection of fuel so uh, racking systems um, they are quite commonly filled with sprinklers and that's normally a requirement from your insurance company um, so each bay in the racking um, what are they called are they called racking high rise racking I can't remember it's been a while since I've worked in warehousing uh, but you know what I mean so you might have within each kind of cell in this in the racking will have a sprinkler head in it so if one pallet sets on fire extinguishes that pallet so the damage is you know minimized massively you know real clever systems other things to think about aovs and movs so these are automatic uh, manual opening valves so aov is automatic opening valve and a mov is a manual opening valve so these are systems that can either be manually or automatically opened to allow smoke to leave the property. So nine times out of 10, you're gonna have these in big buildings, high rise buildings, where you've got a large staircase as an emergency escape route. So that just keeps it nice and smoke free for people to evacuate. Other things to consider, um, wet and dry risers, um, things like that. So these are basically piping systems um, that are installed in the building with an inlet on the outside for the fire service to let water into so that they don't have to carry the hoses all the way upstairs. So these are systems that are provided for fire fighters. All of these things need maintaining. All of these things can help you mitigate risk. So they're good to have. In some cases, they're, they're needed. You've got to have them. Uh, but if you've got them, make sure you maintain them. So now finally, we're going to move on to record, plan and train. So you have to write it down. It's the same as everything. If you've got five or more staff, you have a license. So some places require you to have a license and that license will require you to have a fire risk assessment. HMOs are a good example of that. Um, a little bit of personal advice for me, if you're allowing public access to your property, um, I'd pr probably just have that written down, um, your fire assessment anyway, you know, once you're letting it out to the public, you can't really control the numbers you're coming in. And yes, if you have five more members of staff, you have to, you have to legally write it down. But if you're going to have five or more people in the property, in addition to two or three staff, um, maybe it's a small shop that you could potentially have 10 in one time. Um, better to just have it written down also it's going to help you in any kind of civil litigation as well so plan we have a, you've got to have clear plans on how to prevent a fire you've got to have plans on how to keep people safe you've got to have emergency plans maintenance plans of fire safety systems plants and equipment plan to coordinate and cooperate with other users of the building so now we've got to think about reviews so you know i've literally just absolutely blew through that um, and that's kind of mainly because I waffled at the beginning about fire and got completely off subject um, and now we're at 34 minutes into this already and I've actually whizzed through the, the rest of it also because I am very aware that I've still got to peel some potatoes make some roasties before the wife gets home or else I will be dead and not be providing you with any more podcasts which hopefully you'd be really upset about. So now we're going to talk about review. So basically, you've done your you've done your risk assessment because you've listened to this awesome podcast, and now you're like, oh my god, I can do a fire risk assessment. So you've now got your fire risk assessment. Now you got to review it. 
So you need to kind of keep it under kind of really a constant review um, or at least regular reviews over time. Um, and that's basically just keeping it in the back of your head, just being mindful of any kind of changes to your property. Now, one thing to keep an eye out for, most consultants will automatically put an annual review time on your fire risk assessment. They will automatically put in there to be reviewed in one year and people do it. It's pretty much a license to print money. There is not a legal requirement to review it yearly. To the episode where we went through the regulatory reform order then so what does the law say basically it says they've got to review it if there's reason to suspect it's no longer valid or there's been significant change to the premises to the technique to the organizational measures to the organization itself to the the kind of services that you're providing any kind of changes let's say you have an extension on the property you've extended the property or let's say you have, I don't know, you've got double the amount of customers coming in for some reason. You know, technically it could be a change. So just, just keep it in the back of your head and just think about these things. So, hang on a minute, we've got the double the amount of customers in. I'm just going to have a check with our escape routes just to see if it can take that amount of customers. If it can't, we might need to think about some other mitigating steps here. You know, just keep it in the back of your head. You don't have to do it annually, um, but you do have to just keep thinking about it. Just keep thinking about it. Anytime you change anything in your business, that assessment becomes no longer valid and you just think, all right, boom, I need to go and review that now. You might even have to rewrite it, just have to change a little bit. Um, if you're going to do a kind of annual kind of check, then... I wouldn't rewrite the whole thing, just have like a little box on the virus assessment or a separate form or something like that, that you can just go to sign, say, yep, I've, che I've checked it and nothing's changed. So finally, who can do a virus assessment then? So interestingly, here's a guide from, here's what the um, Fire Risk Assessment Competency Council says in their guide. There is no legislative requirement for fire risk assessments to be carried out by a competent person. Hmm, interesting. This is to avoid any implication that every duty holder under the legislation, which and also the responsible person, needs to employ the services of a fire safety specialist, such as a consultant, to carry out their fire risk assessments. For small, simple premises, it's often the duty holder that carries out the fire risk assessment, and arguably, in these premises, the duty holder is the best person to do so because of their intimate knowledge of the premises and the activities therein. Guidance to support those wishing to carry out fire assessment themselves has been made available by the government. There you go, guys. You've heard it from the top of the top. These people that are in this fire assessment competency council are the top dogs of fire. All of the collections of the institutes and all the all the you know old bods that sitting at the top, they said that and they put it in there. So don't you take that consultant's word for gospel because he's having you on and he's full of crap because he wants to pay for his new ferrari so you can do it yourself but it can be quite daunting and i can completely understand that but some buildings that can get quite complicated so for small buildings small pubs and restaurants even you know small shops and offices our FRA can be really, really simple. When the properties start to get bigger or the ignition source is starting to get bigger or your collection of fuel starts to get bigger, you know, or na the nature of the building or the people starts to get more complicated. Maybe you get multiple organizations in one building. There's a sleeping risk. 
Now we're starting to talk about quite complicated things here. Now you may want to hire a consultant. So in that case, the reference that we've just spoken about, the guide from the Fire Risk Assessment uh, Competency Council, which I will link to in the description for you, that can help you massively um, because that breaks down what a competent fire risk assessor actually looks like. Not looks like, you know, must have a beard, must have good hair, must be really good looking, really good fashion self. I'm going to stop describing myself now. <laughs> yeah, that's awkward. Um, even my dog didn't find that funny. And he normally laughs at everything. So you've got that guide. You've got that fire risk assessment competency council guide. What else can, have we got? What else can we consider? Well, there's institutes. They can You can look out for some members of institutes, such as the Institute of Fire Engineers. Um, there are other institutes, such as the Institute of Fire Safety Managers. They're all good. You know, don't take them for automatic evidence of competency. There's some little tricks that some people do. Um, let's take this, and I'm being brutally honest here. The IFE, the Institute of Fire Engineers, normally holds their members to a higher standard than others, such as the Institute of Fire Safety Managers. Um, so a technician in an IFE is quite a competent person. Uh, normally and again don't take that for gospel um whereas an associate which is the next level up um in the i institute of fire safety managers um is equivalent to a technician in the ife so just bear that in mind so the easy thing to do i would start that's your base that's that's what i would do that's your base limit employ fire safety consultants and fire risk assessors as a minimum that are technicians in the IFE or equivalent yeah so then what else do we do well now we can start looking into the fire risk assessment competency council guide we can also think about things like accreditation or registers that you can get onto the register of fire risk assessors um, so a registered fire risk assessor might start to become law in the future there's a lot of chat around that whether that will happen i don't know um whether that's a good thing or not i'm a bit on the fence i think they would probably need to tighten up the registers there's, there's a lot of them um probably each of the membership kind of groups have their own register um and then there's other ones you know Faith do one, um, Warrington Fire do one. There, there's a lot out there. Are they all the same? Do they all hold them to the same standards? It's just they're just too much to measure. So I think that needs tightening up before they make it law. Anyway, again, yet again, I am waffling. So the simple things you can do is you can ask these people about their experiences. You know, ask them about the problems you've got on fire. What do they think about? What would they do? Ask them if they've got any testimonials, any case studies. Try and find their customers on social media. LinkedIn's a great place for that. Hey, anyone, have you used bloody blah fire risk assessments? Also, one final kind of note. For, don't take a history of working in a fire service and automatic um, signed for competency either you know that sounds really horrible and I'm, I'm no disrespect to the fire service believe me um, I'm a massive advocate for them I was absolutely fuming when I watched that dispatches show again I am waffling I'm just not going to do a fire podcast again because obviously I just cannot shut up um, anyway to the point don't take history of working in a fire service and an automatic sign for competency either 
you know, try and find out if they were operational or whether they worked in fire safety. Um, they're two very different things. Operational is the people that save your life. Uh, fire safety, the people stop stop the need for operational. They're the people that are like checking the buildings, the inspectors that come around, people that are like going around trying to be a bit more uh, preempted, checking building designs, things like that. Um, they are the fire safety department. Most of the cases, they work together in enforcement as well. I think London has a separate enforcement unit. But anyway, I am not here trying to moan about consultants. They have a place and they will help you. And there are some awesome, awesome consultants out there that really, really know their shit. Um, I'm just trying to help you weed out the cowboys. Check the consultant's advice on the website as well and check that against the law. You know, remember when I told you in episode seven about that um, consultant that was saying that it's against the law for you to do a fire assessment yourself? Um, they're lying. You know, for me, that's a big no-no. See you later. Boom, you're not hiring you. Um, and we've just mentioned the fire risk assessors register. So, I mean, if you're having all these conversations, you're looking at all this stuff, you're going to find uh, a good consultant or you're at least reducing your chances of getting a crap consultant. So I have absolutely whizzed over that stuff, guys. But that is in 45 minutes-ish, that is how to do a fire risk assessment. You know, basic stuff. It's not too hard. I will put a link to the description of kind of good guides and, and things like that. Um, I will link to um, all the other stuff I've mentioned as well. Uh, the competency criteria for fire assessors by the council. Um, hope you found this useful, guys. So let me know if you do your own fire risk assessments, if you do, how you found them. If you went on any training as well, whack it on um, the comments on LinkedIn or something like that so people can see it um, and you can help out the community as well. So don't forget, hit us up on Twitter, at RiskBluent, or come find us on Facebook, forward slash RiskBluent. Fluent, sorry. Um, I'm James McPherson. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. Hey, give it, if you're listening on Google or Apple or Spotify, give us some stars, give us a share. A review would be absolutely awesome. Um, so, yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Um, I'll see you next week.